Just a content note before we start today's episode, this episode contains discussion of domestic violence, uh, childhood sexual abuse and suicide. So if that's not something you'd like to listen to, then uh, this isn't an episode for you. Hello, and welcome to Season 7, Episode 2 of Bad Gaze, a podcast about evil and complicated queers in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwulis Museum in Berlin. Uh, my name's Hugh Lemmy. I'm an author, writer, artist, that sort of thing. And uh, last week, we talked about Karl Lagerfeld, the white-haired fashion designer whose penchant for making racist and misogynist comments accompanied a career spent... Um, helping convert the fashion industry into something that's really image-driven and really based on mass production. Who are we talking about this week, Hugh? Well, today on Bad Gaze, we've got um, a very rare twofer. Uh, I don't think we've done two people at once before, have we? Well, we did the Simeon Solomon Sasha Schneider episode, but they weren't. I mean, it was two sort of mini episodes, yeah. not a pair. Yeah. So, well, for the last few seasons, I've been weighing up whether to do an episode on either Joe Orton or one on Kenneth Halliwell. But I decided that the men's lives, these two men's lives, they're so inextricably linked, not just in terms of biography, but in terms of the meaning of their lives. Um, and, uh, you know, both of them have aspects of their life that would make them worthy of featuring on a podcast. So on this episode, um, I decided, you know, let's discuss the lives of the writers, actors, playwrights, artists, lads about town, uh, Joe Orton and Kenneth Halliwell. Two great tastes that taste great together. <laughs> uh, so let's start with Joe Orton, who's the younger and um, probably better known of the two. So uh, Joe Orton was born on New Year's Day, 1933, the eldest of four children, to William and Elsie Orton in Leicester in the East Mid Midlands of England. So his family were very working class. His dad was a, a, a gardener for the council and his mum was a factory worker. And for the first few years of his life, he lived with his parents in his grandparents' very small uh, two-up, two-down house, as they say in the UK, um, on the exotically na named Avenue Road Extension. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes Northern European countries just act as though they're committed to wringing all of the pleasure out of everything. You know, <laughs> that's one of them. Yeah. Um, and, but then with the arrival of his younger brother, the family then moved to uh, a, an interwar council estate, the Saffron Lane estate, um, and then he had two younger sisters as well. So Joe's life and his work was very deeply inflected, understandably, by the tensions that existed within Britain at the time. Um, in many ways, as a working class writer, he would benefit from the massive reforms to the welfare state that were brought in after the Second World War, like the National Health Service and increased access to higher education, things like that. At the same time, Britain after the war was a grey and uh, quite stultifying place. The privations of aerial bombardment and uh, naval blockade and rationing, and then austerity and these huge loans from the US that um, Britain was required to, to pay off to pay off the cost of the war. Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, it was also socially uh, quite a bleak place. Uh, many had returned from the war, understandably traumatised by their experience, wanted to get back to normal everyday life. Um, and while the Labour government that had um, come in had sort of implemented these huge waves of nationalization and social welfare, partly to fend off the threat of revolution, as we said. The, the class system remains largely unchanged. And the er era of um, liberalization and the boom of pop culture that would sort of help create modern Britain to, as we understand it today was still 20 years away in the 1960s. Right. And even I think if you said in some previous episodes, uh, 60s London, even 60s London is a lot kind of uh, has a lot more damp buses and chipped teacups than uh, we like to admit when we think back about Aston Martins. And yeah, it wasn't it wasn't swinging for most people. We'll say that. Yeah. Um, and then the wave of sort of post-war immigration, um, largely from the West Indies and also from India and Pakistan, that would help introduce a lot more cultural diversity to the UK had only just begun. And in 1950, the population of the UK was 50 million people, but there were only 350,000 television sets. Oh, wow. So that sort of like shared popular culture um, didn't, didn't, didn't happen you know, on TV and stuff like this at that, that point. Really, it was the sort of grey heart of a, a crumbling, bankrupt empire, and it was very hidebound by tradition and moral and social conservatism and austerity. Hey. Imagine such a place. <laughs> Who could imagine such a place? Um, there, there, there were there were sparks. There were interesting things happening, but it wasn't. Uh, you know, in general, uh, I think it's fair to say that yeah, it wasn't quite like uh, a, a bright and exciting, hip happening place. 
and uh, and so Orson was being brought up in this in this working class family in this sort of world, but we shouldn't imagine that Orton's upbringing was some sort of, you know, heartwarming, making do with now but love working class Northern family life that you sometimes see on TV. Um, in the words of Joe's little sister, Leonie, their mother, Elsie, was, quote, a cruel bitch. Uh, she beat her children. Um, she'd go to the pub and then she'd leave her kids outside. Um, they'd wander off and she wouldn't bother going to find them. She wouldn't call them back in at night. And she was a very sort of bitter woman too, a frustrated singer. She would often lament that she hadn't received the success and plaudits that she felt that she deserved. She was also very much a snob. Uh, she spent money that she didn't have to pay for luxuries that would sort of distinguish her from the other families on the housing estate. She affected not just a sort of bourgeois lifestyle, but also bourgeois values too. She'd put on a posh voice in public. But then when she was at home, she would sort of curse out her husband when he bought back his meager paycheck, saying, quote, it's neither arsehole nor watercress. In many ways, she was um, a fantasist of class. And this loveless childhood would provide Orton with a rich subsoil in which to plant his dark comedies of um, manners and class in his later life. Here's a good example. While Joe was a very bright kid, he wasn't particularly exceptional, um, and although his mother regarded him as, as special. At 11, he failed this type of English exam that's called the 11 plus that you took at the end of your primary education, which uh, at the age of 11, uh, which determined what type of school you'd go into for your teenage years. So they had this thing called tripartite education. You'd, there, there was uh, technical schools, which were aimed at producing engineers and sci- scientists and things like that to a very high standard. Uh, a grammar school, which was aimed at producing a sort of intellectual, classically trained elite. And then a secondary modern, which taught more practical subjects that were very useful for working life, plus you know the academic basics. And while all three parts of this post-war tripartite system were supposed to be equal, in reality, it's not hard to see. <laughs> yeah. It's not hard to see how a structure like that, um, which was bought in by the Conservatives, it has to be said, not Labour, um, a structure like that sort of reproduced and perpetuated the class system. Fun fact, um, that is still how public education works in Germany. Uh, so people, it decides who you go to university when you're eight. And so despite university there being free, there is less social mobility there than in the UK or the US. Yeah. And while the UK has moved to a comprehensive system for most state education, there is still a grammar school system now where you have to sit in 11 plus to, to see whether you're, I guess, smart enough to get in. Um, and Joe failed his 11 plus, the exams, or quote unquote, failed, i.e. he didn't get into grammar school because um, he'd been off school a lot because he was ill with asthma, very bad asthma. But his mother wouldn't be seen dead letting her school, her son attend a secondary modern school. So she pawned her wedding ring to send him to a private college because she didn't want him to go to school with the other boys from the estate. Uh, it, it wasn't a very good fit for him. Um, first of all, it was a clerical college. She just sent him to like the local private educational institution, but it was a clerical college, which was not suited to him at all. And um, also, according to his tutor, he sort of regarded him as basically being functionally illiterate when he arrived. And later in his life, when he became a writer, he was um, he would make long lists of, of words, learning how to spell them, um, you know, writing these lists of sentences and how words got together. He really was a self-taught writer kind of later in life. That's amazing. Yeah, it's actually interesting. He, he's he's not the only writer who came from that estate, um, the Saffron Lane estate. There's also Sue Townsend, who uh, wrote a very famous set of kids, but well, no, not kids' books, books called Adrian Mole, the Adrian Mole Diaries, mm-hmm. which British readers all know very well. <clears throat> uh, a, a communist, a communist writer uh, who came from that estate and, uh, yeah, lifelong working class activist. Anyway, uh, that was much later. Joe uh, is sort of in the... Uh, late 40s he he really couldn't wait to escape this very loveless family um and they always regarded him as as, as different and he regarded himself i guess as, as different uh, and special kind of like his mum did i guess um but he also had real struggle communicating in general he found himself very frustrated at being unable to to finish his sentences or get his desires across but in theater he found a much more structured way of being himself and and playing a fantasy and as a teen he was really captured by the theater Theater kid. Yeah, as so many of us were. Uh, and uh, began performing with the local amateur dramatic society. Um, there's a joke there somewhere about the local amateur dramatic society, <laughs> but I'm not quick enough to make it. Uh, well, he wasn't, you know, he, he also found it hard there. He didn't get the roles he wanted. Anyway, after finishing. None of us did. None of us did. Yeah. After, after finishing school, he got and then he lost a job as a clerk. But really, he sort of dreamed of escaping to London. Um, 
as so many of us did. <laughs> so there's so much about this story that really rings true to me. And uh, and he really wanted to attend RADA, the uh, Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, which was is is still the sort of premium, uh, the most most um, highly regarded dramatics uh, arts institution in in, in England. Um, but no one really thought it lightly on the basis basically of his class and his ability. He wasn't actually that great an actor. Yeah. And also, is that the sort of place that at this time you wouldn't have been admitted unless you could already deliver a Shakespearean monologue in the right sort of accent? Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, like a, lot, a lot of actors at that point talk about, you know, having to change their accent and stuff. And actually, he also went to uh, to, an, to uh, elocution classes. Oh. Um, Something that maybe we would benefit from. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but Better a little bit. Yeah. But um, actually, when it came to it, he actually gave a really impressive audition and he got in thanks to a, a scholarship from the local educational committee, which is, again, one of these sort of things that were happening post-war that allowed this new generation of working class actors and writers to get accepted to these institutions. Oh, and they've put a stop to all that nonsense. Yeah, um, yeah imagine thinking art, art and culture was like a social good. That would be awful. Yeah. Uh, so when he was 18, he was accepted to RADA and he was finally out of Leicester and heading for London. Whereas Kenneth Halliwell's early life was markedly different. Uh, Ken's family was resolutely middle class. His uh, dad was a chartered accountant at the Camel Laird shipyard in Liverpool. And he was raised in Bebbington, which is a, a nice suburb on, uh, of Liverpool on the Wirral Peninsula. Uh, Ken was born in 1926, uh, seven years before Joe, and his mother, Daisy, had had complications during childbirth. She had a cesarean, meaning that Ken was her only child, and so she doted upon him. Uh, and she was a very loving, caring mother, by all accounts. Uh, but in contrast to Joe, Ken's mother was known as this lively, vivacious woman, while his father was, was quiet um, and kept himself to himself. Also, unlike uh, Joe, and perhaps reflecting the class differences at play, Ken did go to grammar school. And while he'd been shy, he was also into drama, enjoying dressing up and reading. So what had been a sort of promising start to his life, however, really turned to tragedy in 1937 when Ken was 11. His mother, Daisy, was stung by a wasp and then she must have suffered some sort of allergic reaction. She died from the wasp sting. Oh, my God. Yeah, really horrible. A freak accident. Yeah. So Ken was now stuck at home with his very taciturn father, who obviously, in retrospect, was almost certainly suffering from grief and, and depression. But the two barely talked to each other, and Ken sort of began acting out, and he had this very headstrong attitude, uh, and it became much more pronounced. Uh, he once ran away from home and left a note and a rose, um, and he was caught by his uh, dad and a lodger in a local restaurant. Ken also became involved in amateur dramatics, and unlike Joe, he was regarded as actually really talented at it. And his grief seemed to everyone to sort of give him this intelligence and a mere maturity that was beyond his years. And his tutors regarded him as um, potentially a classical scholar, but his heart was very much set on the stage. So at the end of the war, he was conscripted into the army, but he became a conscientious objector, so he refused to fight. Um, and as a result, he became what was known as a Bevin boy, which were these young men who were conscripted into coal mining. They were sent down the mines. So quite improbably, this sort of like very shishi middle class uh, theatre kid was sent down the coal mines. And unsurprisingly for this sort of, yeah, slightly affected middle class homosexual, coal mining was not for him. No. Uh, so he began work working as an actor, um, but also he began his career as a writer. Um and yeah, he was difficult for a few years for him. He'd sort of move away and do some work, but then he'd be forced to come back and live with his dad. So he was sort of kind of saw himself stuck, stuck on the Wirral with his father. And then in 1949, he came down for breakfast one morning to see his father lying on the kitchen floor, his head in the gas oven, having killed himself. Oh, my God. So Ken turned off the oven, uh, put a kettle on the hob. He made himself a cup of tea. He drank it. He went upstairs, he had a shave, and then he went next door to tell the neighbours that his father was dead. Wow. Yeah, he seemed to have really like zero, zero connection what to his father at all. What a yeah. great father-son relationship yeah. that was. Yeah. Um, but one of the, uh, one of the, 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 the things about his father's um, untimely death was that Ken inherited some money. And with the money they inherited, he could finally live the life that he felt he deserved. And he spelt, spent it very lavishly. 
so now orphaned and in his early 20s. He too made his escape from his childhood life by moving to London and buying a house in Hampstead um, and attending RADA which he didn't get a scholarship for, which he was kind of bitter about. It was it was in RADA that he met Joe for the first time. Uh, so descriptions of Kenneth at the time are rarely very flattering. He was a blowhard whose charisma in these little acting groups in the North looked far more like arrogance to his fellow students in RADA in the South, where there was a lot more talent, I guess. Um, he wasn't the best in the room anymore. And what's more, um, he was 25 while... Most of his new colleagues were, you know, still in their teens, 18 and 19. He was balding rapidly, so he shaved his head to hide it, which made him seem even older. And he wore a black pinstripe suit and a black tie with a beret. And he was constantly, constantly wiping his hands on his handkerchief to remove the sweat because he was sweating the whole time. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Can I make my favorite beret joke? It's from Will and Grace. Oh, honey, not a beret. Patty Hearst couldn't even pull one off, and she had money and a gun. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a good look for him. Um, and he was also seen very much as like kind of having this like shifty, sort of anxious personality in the presence of others. Oh, gee, I wonder what he's mopping gallons of sweat <laughs> off of his hands constantly. Yeah, in his belly. Like, God. Um, neither Joe nor Ken actually either impressed any of the people at RADA. Um, Joe was, you know, he was much handsome and he was very chatty, but he was sort of written off by his uh, peers as a provincial working class lad um, and by his tutors as lacking substance. But they very much impressed each other. Um, to Joe, Ken was a, a worldly cultured man who embodied all the things that his upbringing lacked. While to Ken, Joe was a sort of access to a more sort of social, friendly, normie side of his life. So soon Joe and two of his friends moved in as lodgers into Ken's house. And uh, only having three beds, Joe shared Ken's bed and their relationship began. Oh, no, we just had to. Yeah. <laughs> there weren't enough beds. So, that went a million times. <laughs> so on graduation, the two men both got jobs in different uh, repertory theatres. That's so like theatres, the same group of actors performing different plays. Right. So uh, they're good enough to get jobs as actors. Yeah, yeah. Or is this just a time when that's, you know, more of the a higher percentage of the people coming out of Rada are becoming working actors than probably would now? I think I think that's probably the case as well, yeah. Um and also, you know, as there's not very many uh T V sets, there's probably more theatre going on, I guess. Right, right, right. Uh, I I assume, I don't know. So Ken uh gets his in Landudno in North Wales, which is not as prestigious as Joe, who gets one in Ipswich, which is close to London, which is kind of just how England works, unfortunately. Um but also, like I can imagine, nineteen late nineteen fifties Northern Welsh provincial theatre being very, yeah, low budget and cold and yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but also, you know, work was not their thing. They weren't into working. The impression you get of them really is of a sort of bohemian hipsters in the original sense of the word, like the Beat Generation or something. But but there was no scene, you know, like largely because they themselves had become very isolated as a pair, but also because the, the limitations of the cultural scene in London at the time was a very small scene. They didn't have access to it, I guess. But the pair were, um, despite this, they were like exceptionally creative and hardworking when it came to their own output. And in the mid-50s, they started to write together. So as with many things in their relationship, Ken was the sort of initial motive behind the ideas. Um, he dictated uh, and or sort of you know, read his ideas out and Joe typed them up. But very soon, uh, Joe's sort of suggestions and additions became an invaluable part of the creative process. And so they sort of became collaborators and they produced a, a whole slew of novels. Um, the Silver Bucket, The Mechanical Womb, The Last Days of Sodom. Uh, none of which, unfortunately, were published, and all of that which have since been lost. Yeah, that's a, a great lost novel, I'm sure. Um, and also two two novellas, one called The, the Boy Hairdresser and Lord Cucumber, both of which were only published in the um, the last couple of decades. I've actually telling me that The Boy Hairdresser isn't the last days of Sodom. <laughs> I actually have uh, have them on the shelf here. Um, but uh, nonetheless, uh, you know, they, they were sort of submitting to publishers and they weren't getting anywhere. Rejection followed rejection and they piled up their works, but they were still honing their style. Um, and Orton's own voice, his sort of own brand of this very dark humor was becoming more and more pronounced in the novels. It must have been a very frustrating bind to be developing a, a stronger, much more satirical and critical streak to your work, but all the while lacking an audience or a peer group with whom to share it. 
What's more, they were they were running out of money fast. The inheritance was dwindling away. But of course, they, they regarded work as being this great enemy to their actual genius. So occasionally they'd take jobs. Um, eventually, they ended up working in a, a chocolate factory for sort of six-month periods throughout the 50s. But still, the class system persist, persisted within that. So Joe could only get a job as a packer on the factory floor while Halliwell worked as a clerk in the office. Um, through this work, they eventually saved enough to get a new flat together at 25 Knoll Road, Islington in 1959. Let's not get, let's not get too bitter about the fact that um, the difference in the economic system at the time that they could afford to buy a flat even while they were actively avoiding trying to work. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and also a flat in Knoll. What did it cost? £10? <laughs> yeah, also a flat in Knoll Road. <clears throat> So the top floor flat at Knoll Road became this sort of haven and a, a creative hothouse for them. Um, actually, I'm sure it did with their 17 cent monthly <laughs> living cost or whatever the hell it was. Jesus Christ. Um, I actually used to work in um, in building maintenance in, in London. I lived in London a long time ago now. And by chance, I actually did a job doing some painting and decorating in a top floor flat on that side of Knoll Road. I think not 25, I think a couple of flats down. This was, yeah, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. But they are very nice um, Georgian townhouse flats now. But back, they were, they were, they are also still quite small. And God knows how much they cost, 4000 a month or something now, I'm sure. Jesus Christ. Um, but that's because Islington has changed. Back then, that part of Islington wasn't the sort of shishi uh, gentrified neighbourhood uh, that it is today. Um, and the impression of their lifestyle you get from Joe's diaries is is pretty great. You know, they life of maybe might have been cheaper, but they had very little to get by on. Um, you sort of get this image of London as a sort of uh, grey city of smoke and drafty apartments and yeah stuffy tough decks i, I will box. say my uh, boyfriend joao used to live in a georgian flat in exeter which had been renovated at some point to have carpet everywhere including the bathroom which still horrifies me That's psychologically me. and emotionally and you could hold your hand like three inches under the window and feel a draft like those buildings are built like sieves yeah i don't understand why they haven't, haven't figured out what the insulation yet but why has england not figured out how to build a building you, all of that money, all of those colonies, and you still don't have water pressure. It's, it's astonishing. Anyway. Um, and the, the carpeted bathroom is a particular disgusting English speciality. I, I, it <laughs> horrifies me to my core. I just, I still am not over it. I'm so glad to not be in the carpeted bathroom anymore. Well, anyway, inside this flat, um, Halliwell in particular sort of turned his attention to decorating and he revealed himself as actually a quite extraordinary visual artist. Um, this wasn't, you know, like a, a nice new blind and uh, an Ikea lamp or something. Um, he began collaging all the walls of the flat with this sort of cornucopia of amazing images cut out from um, books and magazines. I've seen some photos of actually of, of the entire flat in, in this book that was published about it called um, Malicious Damage. The Defaced Library Books of Kenneth, Kenneth Halliwell and Joe Orton by uh, Ilsa Colesell. It's worth looking at. It's an interesting book. And it's really astonishingly striking, like not just um, interesting or impressive, but like kind of alarming. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah I'm looking, at I'm looking up a picture now. Oh, my God. It's crazy. Yeah. Like it's just it's like pictures, faces. Constantly. I didn't expect how many faces it was going to be like. Faces yeah. of statues and faces of boys and like naked boys, a lot of like Greek stuff and really, it is really yeah, like really uh, weird. strange, alarming, uh, alarming imagery and very like. Can you? I can't imagine lying there trying to go to sleep at night with all those eyes yeah, looking right. down at you. Like, it's like, really... like, and and people like friends who visited said they didn't, they didn't enjoy going around, and they covered the entire flat. And yeah, like you say, they're dead dominated by hundreds of faces and you know sculptures from across history and artworks and paintings and these sort of anthropological photos that you might find in you know National Geographic magazine at the time, things like that. It's really quite it, something. Yeah, it wasn't a sort of quirky way to brighten up the place. Um, yeah, our visitors said that they found them like visually dark and murky and sort of psychologically menacing, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, uh, on the other hand, he also made this uh, very <laughs> nice, impressive uh, collage dressing screen. Um, you know, these sort of like, they're like, you know, five foot high sort of concertina devices that you sort of dress behind in the olden days. Um, and it was covered almost entirely in cutouts of cats. I think it's called World of Cats. Oh, my God. <laughs> the uh, internet before the internet. I mean, Fauno's not in the room now, but I'm sure Fauno would appreciate. Yeah. Are you going to decoupage your entire <laughs> flat with uh, pictures of Fauno? I mean, I actually weren't. But... Um, <clears throat> so inside this very uh, pokey apartment, they sort of sat there not working and stewing as 
frustrated writers. Oh, gee, I wonder what that's like. Yeah. And I think actually, I think frustrated really is the right adjective for these men in, in all its forms. You know, their, their attempts to make a literary impact had been frustrated and they were sort of interpersonally frustrated. Nothing was going anywhere. And in some part, um, it was down to their own personalities and attitudes. So uh, John Lair, who is like the um, Orton and Halliwell expert, he puts their predicament well in his um, excellent biography of Orton called Prick Up Your Ears. Um, the title Prick Up Your Ears is a pun because if you say it in a sort of English posh, posh accent, it sounds like Prick Up Your Ass, Prick Up Your Art. I can't do the accent. You know. Imagine the Queen saying Yes. Anyway, so in Prick Up Your Ears, he said, quote, Orson and Halliwell were dropouts before the fallout of beat culture in 1950s filtered down through English society and made it modish. They questioned the culture's values, but absorbed its literary traditions. It was a hermetic existence, at once a pleasure and a necessity. Neither their identities nor their literary style was strong enough to venture into a society that threatened and endangered and sorry, threatened and angered them. Their solitude was a barometer of their vulnerability and suspicion. It also became a consolation for literary failure. End quote. It's a good way of putting it, I think. They were inherently mischievous. They were they were rebellious more than they were radical, I'd say, politically. Um, they sort of liked to poke fun. Uh, Joe even said, quote, I'm not committed to <clears throat> politics or sex or life. And uh, Lair um, uh, relates that to a sort of, um, I guess, an enjoyment of the sort of playing of identity that comes with theatre. So their work is satirical. It punches hypocrisy and stuffiness, but it's not motivated by a particular specific social ideal. It's like not campaigning theatre like, like some of the sort of angry young men were, let's say. Um, I think it's telling that Joe, um, although not Kenneth, um, he he loved cruising and cottaging as an integral part of his sexual habits. You know, going to going to toilets and hooking up with guys in that way and stuff. And that's really also something that brings you into contact with lots of people in a way that's very detached from your fixed social identity. There's like an aspect of play to cruising as well, and he knew that and he drew creatively from it. And he would later tell his friends the um, extremely interesting and I think maybe a potential bad gay too, um, the actor Kenneth Williams, that when he was cruising, quote, "I make things up." I call myself a packer, a metal worker, a lithographer, a hairdresser's assistant. That way I put people off guard. Their dialogue is natural. It's also better for sex. Hmm. But without an audience, this mischievous character quickly, you know, it gets stuck and frustrated. And by the early 1960s, that's where the men were. Frustrated so, and stuck. Yeah. And that was all to change and in quite a dramatic fashion. Uh, and not only that, but it would actually be the collages that really instigated that change. So around the time they moved into the flat on Knoll Road, Ken and Joe began visiting the Islington Public Library. And there they'd take out books, sneak them out, take them home, uh, and then begin collaging the covers and make new covers for them. And they'd cut out images from, you know, these reproductions and stuff and then make these strange sort of very dark, funny new dust jackets. So, for example, one of them, they take, they take a book of um, John Betjeman poems and then they, they replace, I guess, the photo of him on the front with this photo of this like very heavily tattooed naked guy. Uh, old man or um, they sort of replace the flowers on the book of a cover uh, a cover of a book about roses with these like weird monkeys heads um, ah. they're good they're really good the, uh, the uh, artist uh, Alex Margot Arden um, actually recently had a show at the Royal Academy in London where she traced every single edition that was used in these original colleges and she made these new versions using the originals and um it's really interesting because in her research, yeah, it turns out there's like they 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 stole and redid a lot of books. Um, yeah, like I, I think she said there's like sixty or seventy books, or maybe even hundreds of books. I can't remember. Oh, wow. So, um, and it seems like mostly the visual work, or not or not all, but most of the visual work, the imagery is Ken's. While there's lots of written ones as well, things like new titles and fake blurbs, for example, and those seem to be Joe's. Uh, so as an example, on the back of uh, Dorothy Sayers' book uh, for the Lord Peter Whimsey series, it's like a famous series of sort of detective fiction, I guess, I think. Uh, she, uh, yeah, he, he he added this new blurb, which I'm going to read because it's a good, it gives a good taste of, of like Orton-esque humour. So this is the new blurb that he sort of pasted onto the back of the book. When little Betty McDree says that she's been interfered with, her mother at first laughs. It's only something that the kitty had picked up off television. But when sorting through the laundry, Mrs. McDree discovers that a new pair of knickers are missing. She thinks again. On being questioned, Betty bursts into tears. 
Mrs. McDree takes to the police station, and to everyone's surprise, the little girl identifies PC Brenda Coolidge as her attacker. Brenda, a new recruit, denies the charge. A, sh- a search is made of the women's police barracks. What is found there is a seven-inch phallus and a pair of knickers of the kind used by Betty. All looks black for kindly PC Coolidge. What can she do? This is one of the most enthralling stories ever written by Miss Sayers. It's the only one in which the murder weapon is concealed, not for reasons of fear, but for reasons of decency. Read this behind closed doors and have a good shit while you're reading. Ah! <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, it really does. Like, it, it reminds me, actually, there's just been this huge retrospective of general idea in, like... Um, several different cities um and it was just in berlin and i just saw it because it just closed at the time of recording and that kind of style right of kind of culture hacking Mm. and you know creating these kinds of dark humor and satire using the kind of ingredients of um these kind of existing kind of mass cultural properties like 10 15 years later that's the exact kind of thing that general idea would do right yeah like this is like a very english form of like um situationist tournament if you want to put it that way right exactly no it is and 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 uh, you know general idea is canadian which is also very english right oh, yeah. so there you go right like, that's why it reminds me of that particularly but it really does i mean it's the kind of thing that would be like um it's the kind of thing that would be um really um that you would really expect to see in like a hippie situation or or um yeah something else yeah, it's, it's the sort of stuff that people would later theorize uh, uh, in, in various ways, but they were sort of just sort of doing it. But what's really interesting, so they'd, they'd do these, make these books or whatever, they'd stolen from the library and rework them. But then they'd take them back to the library, they'd smuggle them back into the library and put them back into circulation on the shelves. So it was a prank, really. But they're also, you know, artworks in their own right. It's media art. I mean, yeah. it's really, it's like, you know, like mail art or something yeah. like that. So Orson, library art, <laughs> library art. Yeah. So Orson would later say that he'd then sit in the library and then watch the shelves for his books and wait for someone to to pick it up and read it. So truly, like a frustrated writer looking for an audience, like he wants to know what people think of his work. He's like hacking, yeah, like hacking his work into the system. <clears throat> and of course, like really funny. <laughs> but um, someone was get a grant to do that now. Yeah. Well, someone actually was reading and watching their work very carefully. Uh, it was Islington Public Library. Yeah, I can imagine that um, after uh, after a few uh, shocked mystery readers bringing over PC Brenda Cooper and a seven-inch dildo, you maybe start having some issues. Yeah, right. And there's, there's, so there's, they, they put this legal clerk from the Islington Council onto the case. Who There's interviews of him, and you can read his stuff, and he's like – an amazing Orton-esque character in his own right, this guy who decides he's going to solve this case and is very uh, funny in the way he talks about these like these these uh, naughty boys. And eventually he he deduced that the, the, the men were the culprits and he did not see their work as a, a daring act of situation as determent, but uh, instead as criminal vandalism. So to prove it was them, this this council clock, and you can the, the resources that the, the welfare state had at that point to put someone on to do this, this sort of Islington Council Clark, legal clerk who was chasing them, uh, was a sort of very impressive amateur sleuth. And so he wrote them a, a hoax letter from a different department of the council claiming that they had abandoned a car on the street outside of their flat and that they were going to get in trouble for it. And incensed at this letter, and they, they were very, very keen. They, they wrote a lot of spoof letters and stuff, the, the two men. So incensed that they got this letter, Kenneth replied with his very uptight, angry letter in response. And then the legal clerk matched the typeface of the typewriter that was used on the letter to that that was used on the defaced books. And that was enough evidence for the police to get involved. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, just, just replace the books. But no. Queen... So um, the police then swooped on Knoll Road for this uh, heinous crime, and the two men were arrested and tried, and they were jailed for six months each. Wow. Yeah. So Six months in jail for... for uh, Vandalizing library books, yeah. yeah. So um, Ken uh, took it quite badly, actually. Uh, first of all, he admitted to a prison shrink that he was a homosexual, which was, of course, illegal at the time. Uh, whereas Orton, with, I guess, more working class street smarts, the attitude of a inveterate cruiser, um, he realized that it's not a sort of thing you want to tell the authorities that, that you, don't, you don't want them to know that about you. Yeah, I'd suggest not 
Sorry. doing that, Ken. Yeah, and and Ken was sort of there in 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 the prison, and he was like panicking about it, the mortgage that he had and his domestic arrangements and all that stuff while he was inside. But for Orton, meanwhile, he was kind of fired up by the injustice of the whole affair, and especially the fine that they had to pay on their release, even though he had done a prison sentence. And so for him, it seemed to sort of symbolize this rotten injustice of the whole damn society. Um, and he, he it, it fired him up, you know. It was a turning point as well for their relationship. So prior to the prison, Ken had been in, in some ways the much more dominant sort of leading figure in the couple. But, um, but prison for him seemed to represent, and he went to separate prisons, of course. Prison for him represented yet another humiliating failure in his life. But for Joe, it seemed to provide the hardening that he needed to make his writing really work and he says quote being in the nick already bought attachment to my writing um, I wasn't involved anymore and it suddenly worked so having felt to have failed in their attempts at collaboration when they got out of prison the two men started working on solo projects um, they returned to the flat on Knoll Road and they started writing and the following year Joe sold his first radio play to the BBC oh wow yeah. that's quick yeah um, it was called The Ruffian on the Stairs uh, and it's very much classic Orton, a uh, sort of very dark comedy set in this heartless working class setting. And it sold for 65 quid, which was a, nice day's, a decent amount. But more importantly, it showed you that there was actually an audience for his work and his style. So later that year, he got an agent, the theatre agent Peggy Ramsey, who not only represented him professionally, but um, took an interest in him, became his friend and introduced him to other theatre types. So his confidence was really up, and his next play, Entertaining Mr. Sloan, was a, a critical hit in 1964, uh, even though Ashton didn't make much money. And it seemed to many critics who either loved it or hated it that Orton was the next generation of this uh, the, the angry young men was the term that was used. It was this name given to this group of sort of disillusioned and impassioned sort of largely mid working class and lower middle class writers who emerged in the 50s. Um, writers like Alan Silito and uh, John Osborne and Harold Pinter. Um, actually, Pinter's influence is very clear in Orton's work and Pinter himself was a, as a fan of his work. Hmm. So... Um, even while it was still on stage, uh, Orton was sort of working on a follow-up, which was eventually called Loot. And this turned into an utter flop. The critics absolutely hated it. And so Orton began this furious rewrite while it was still touring, but to little avail. And so suddenly this sense of defeat came back in. But they did have a bit more money in the bank. So Orton and Halliwell then decided they'd take a, a, a holiday for a few months to Morocco. So this was the first of many trips that they took to Morocco um, and about which, you know, Joe wrote extensively in his diaries. Um, and I'm going to talk about them all together because it's not important the differences between them. What is important is that um, for, for Joe and for Ken, the purpose of these trips really was um, to sexually abuse children. Like the way it's framed quite often when people talk about it is like they went to uh, Tangier as a sort of gay mecca. But um, as we'll discuss, it's a lot more darker than that. Like we talked about in the in the Gide episode. Exactly. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> so if you're interested in the role that Tangier in particular played in the um, sexual imagination for uh, gay European men and particularly its role as a place of sex tourism for um pederasts looking to abuse children then uh, yeah i think you did a very good job ben in exploring this in the andre gide episode um but orson and halliwell clearly already knew this reputation um orson would become an acquaintance with a guy called sir ian horobin who was a former tory mp who'd been jailed for abusing children and he moved to tangier presumably to continue the practice um, we've discussed before, I think, as well, some issues around how the law was enforced around this time and the implications for it. So, for example, when we discussed the allegations around Tom Dryberg, we pointed out that um, someone who was under the age of consent in the 1970s, when homosexuality was legal, but but there was a different there was a differing age of consent between homosexual sex and heterosexual sex. So, so someone who who you could ha who would have sex. Uh, who would be a minor in the 1970s would today be a consenting adult. I, the equalization of the age of consent means that people who were seen as predators on minors in the past, actually now we would say, like, we've equalized the age of consent. That right. And that's also where you get, you know, the all the sort of um, that whole kind of right wing media meme, right, about Foucault. Yeah. When in fact, what Foucault was advocating for was for the age of consent to be the same for everybody. Right. right. 
Um, and we've also discussed how the idea that homosexual men were inherently predatory had a huge effect on public understandings of homosexual relations relationships at the time and was a, a big reason that people didn't want to decriminalize. Um, but I think actually counterintuitively perhaps today, sometimes that confusion of the time around how gay men were smeared as paedophiles when they weren't or smeared as predators when they weren't is now used in sort of apologism for people who we want to retain as heroes who actually were. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. For example, I was very surprised when uh, researching this episode, I listened to um, an episode of the um, very well-respected mainstream BBC Radio 4 arts documentary, uh, Front Row, which has been running for years, on Joe Orton. And this Front Row was released in 2017. Uh, and someone on it said, uh, uh, quote, this is a quote, he fled to Morocco seeking sexual liberation. Homosexuality was illegal there, but there was a much more tolerant attitude to same-sex desire, so much so that Tangier became known as queer Tangier. There were so many gay men there. Orton used his sexual and economic privileges to purchase the sexual services of young Moroccan men. So that's a way of like framing it for a contemporary audience to say like he was oppressed from his sexuality in England. So he went there on holiday where it was more free. Right? That's true. Like people did go to Tangier because it was more free. You know, um, Francis Bacon, who we talked about as well, going to Tangier and he was having a sort of open sexual Bulls, relationship with an Jane older man. Bulls. Right. Yeah. But in this case, those men that this person's referring to in a documentary, the they weren't the young, these young Moroccan men. Makes you think, you know, like a 21 year old, 18 year old 18, Moroccan. 18, maybe 17. <clears throat> yeah. Throughout his, di they weren't men. Uh, throughout his diaries, Orton refers to them as young boys because they were young boys. And he tells a friend that he's settled on 15 year olds, he says. Although he says, quote, I lust for Mustafa and he can't be more than 14. Uh, he also recounts um, abusing a 13-year-old boy. Um, and then in her blog about that radio program, the presenter of the radio program quotes an expert on the show saying that, quote, they, quote, point out that it's clear from his diaries he never sl never slept with boys under the local age of consent, end quote. Like, I don't actually know what that means in this situation because homosexuality was illegal in Morocco at the time, so there wasn't age of consent. Or was the heterosexual age of consent 13 or 14? Uh, I actually don't think it's relevant. Um, that the, there might have been increased tolerance around homosexual homosexuality in Tangier, um, but it wasn't also like Autumn was particularly repressed at, at home. Like he was cruising the whole time. He was very promiscuous, much to the torment of Halliwell. I also think the caveats we mentioned earlier don't apply here. They travelled to Tangier because they wanted to pay for sex with children because they were children. Indeed, he describes a one child like this, quote, he wasn't good looking, a little queen, in fact. I'd like to fuck him, though, just because he's 14 and blonde. So it's specifically because they're children. And what's more, when he's back in England, he complains in his diaries when he sees this 15 year old boy at the beach and, and complains that in, unlike in Tangier in England, he can't have sex with him. So like... I think it's it's particularly shocking to hear something like that being broadcast, broadcast especially on BBC after the Jimmy Savile scandal. Um, I like I I don't think a playwright who openly sexually abused children aged thirteen, fourteen, fifteen in the UK would receive that same treatment. Like if they were if they were English kids, right? Um, and but I also don't think and it's okay. Yeah, and I also don't think a, a playwright who went to Tangier to um, abuse 13, 14, 15-year-old girls would get that same treatment. Um, like if Jimmy Savile, you know, like or, or um, indeed uh, Gary Glitter, that's what he, he he went to Thailand to have sex with children of that age, to, to abuse children of that age, and he's not treated in that same way. Um, so I think there's this strange double standard around the treatment of sexual abuse sometimes of boys. Uh, and I also think in this instance explicitly is racialized. It's this hangover from the colonial attitudes that actually had fostered those pederastic sex cultures in the first place. Um, so I'm going to read an extended passage now, which is quite graphic, but I think it's really important because I think it encapsulates so much about Orton, which is his desire to shock and his aggressive hatred of bourgeois values, but also how he absolutely reproduces the bourgeois values of the time regarding colonialism and race and sexual object objectification. So I'll start the quote now. <clears throat> Sat on the boulevard at the Café de Paris and at 10, rose to go, only to meet Nigel, Frank and Kevin, who persuaded us to stay a little longer. 
In the reallotment of seats, I sat next to a rather stuffy American tourist and his disapproving wife. They listened to our conversation and I, realising this, began to exaggerate the content. He took me right up the arse, I said, and afterwards he thanked me for giving him such a good fucking. They're most polite people. The American and his wife hardly moved a muscle. Quote, we've got... We've got a leopard skin rug in the flat and he wanted me to fuck him on that, I said in an undertone which was perfectly audible to the next table. Only I'm afraid of the spunk, you see. It might adversely affect the spots on the leopard. Nigel said quietly, those tourists can hear what you're saying. He looked alarmed. Alarmed. I mean them to hear, I said. They've no right to be occupying chairs reserved for decent sex perverts. And then with excitement, I said, he might bite a hole in the rug. It's the writhing he does, you see, when my prick's up him that he might grievously damage the rug and I can't ask him to control his excitement. It wouldn't be natural when you're six inches up the bum, would it? The American couple frigidly paid for their coffee and moved away. You shouldn't drive people like that away, Nigel said. The town needs tourists. Not that kind it doesn't, I said. This is our country, our town, our civilization. I want nothing to do with the civilization they made. Fuck them. They'll sit and listen to buggers talk from me and drink their coffee and piss off. End quote. I mean, if the him that he's talking about doing on the rug was a consenting adult, there's something kind of amazing about it. But to know that it's not really cast the whole thing in a very kind of chilling way. Yeah, like it's the attitude. Well, yeah, of course that. But then it's also like, yeah, there's this sort of attitude to like fuck the bourgeois norms. But at the same time, he's saying like, this is our country, our town. But it our civilization but it's, it's not, not. <laughs> it's not yours no exactly like it's it's moroccan <clears throat> so anyway back to this, the the story <clears throat> i maybe we can get to it later but back to the story so uh when they returned um joe's new version of loop premiered and then this time it was a smash it did really really well and he became something of a celebrity and his work was very much in demand um he wrote a number of television plays he wrote a, a new full-length stage play called what the butler saw and a screenplay that he wrote specifically at the request of the Beatles for the Beatles. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they were very much at the height of their fame now. This is 1966-67. So Warden is now one of the most famous playwrights in England. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, definitely of the younger playwrights. Yeah. Um, but Ken, meanwhile, had become more and more depressed. Um, so together with Ken as the mentor and Joe as a student, they had this achieved a sort of difficult difficult equilibrium in their relationship but now the student was having much more success and it just seemed like yet another failure for Ken to have achieved any of his ambitions that he'd felt so motivated by as a younger man and he was now entering his 40s um, he had little professional success to his name um, his boyfriend who he'd supported for so long was now paying for him including planning to buy them uh, them both a flat in uh, Brighton alongside their Knoll Road flat as a sort of pied-à-terre or even saying that he was going to buy him a gay bar in Devon he could go and run or even a villa in Marrakesh but all as a way to sort of get out of the relationship and there was hints that he really wanted to just break up with Ken yeah it's like yeah, where can I send you where can I put you, you yeah. know, now that you've gotten me here and Ken was, let's say, sexually unsuccessful when he wasn't paying for it. And Joe, meanwhile, was increasingly promiscuous. And he was careless, if not actively cruel, about his conquests. Um, on their long holiday in Morocco in 1967, Ken would explode in angry outbursts at dinner in restaurants. And he would also talk openly about suicide. Uh, on return to London, he saw his doctor a couple of times a week. And he was clearly not a well man. Uh, the two sort of needled each other the whole time. So at a party, uh, a producer that, that, that Joe was invited to and brought Ken along to, uh, a producer saw Ken wearing an old Etonian tie. So in England, the alumni of, of the big public schools still wear their old school tie around so they can identify with each other. A sort of weird form of informal corruption <laughs> and class, yeah. Um, <coughs> Uh, so this producer saw him wearing an old Etonian tie and obviously he wasn't an old Etonian so he threw him out and he at the party and accused him of being a nobody and saying he was leeching off Joe and, oh. and Ken's oh. behaviour actually wasn't much better he would sort of switch between really bullying Joe mercilessly and then claiming he was really suicidal and um, and, and demanding sort of uh, support and affection so by the August of 1967, Ken's mental health had become really untenable. And on the 8th of August, he called his doctor multiple times. And his doctor realized at this stage that Kenneth actually really needed inpatient psychiatric care. So he arranged that the following day he'd be admitted to a psychiatric hospital. 
Ken seemed quite open to the possibility of it. And at 10 p.m., the doctor called him again. And Ken said, quote, don't worry, I'm feeling better now, he told him. Uh, I'll go see the doctor tomorrow morning. But then at 4 a.m. the following morning, uh, Ken woke up. He took a hammer and he bludgeoned Joe to death. Uh, he left a note for the coroner on uh, Orton's extremely frank and very explicit diary saying, quote, if you read his diary, all will be explained. K.H. P.S. Especially the latter part. And then he swallowed 50 um, pentobarbitone tablets and barbiturates that he washed down with, with fruit juice and he died almost immediately. Mm. Um, and he was actually discovered the next day when... Um, when a chauffeur came to try and pick up Joe to take to a meeting about this film script. So despite normally writing his diary every few days, uh, the last entry in Joe's diary is on the 1st of August, that's over a week earlier, and the entry ends at the end of the page in mid-sentence, which leads you to believe that pages were removed from the diary after he died. Um, so the suicide note, which says, especially the latter part, we don't actually know what it's referring to. You're listening to Bad Gaze, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history. And we'd just like to take a moment to thank all our supporters over on Patreon. Yeah, it wouldn't be possible without you. And that's why we now have for Patreon supporters and Apple Podcast subscribers, a new monthly podcast called Extra Bad Gaze. And that's where we have more informal but still informed conversations about hot topics, um, current issues, current events, current culture, uh, but we do it with that same analysis that makes the show. So uh, this last month, we just talked about this new gay fire island nightmare community that they want to build in the Mediterranean. Um, but it ended up becoming a much deeper conversation about the history of gentrification, about uh, gay men's complicity in it, about how it affects queer communities. Um, and that's the kind of analysis you can, ex you can expect from the show, along with, um, you know, episodes about diva down George Santos and our favorite and least favorite gay Christmas movies. And if you still feel like you haven't had your fill of bad gays, why not check out our book, which is available now, Bad Gays of Homosexual History in hardback or paperback. And it's also now available in Italian translation and coming soon in Thai and in Spanish. And that's at badgayspod.com slash book. And our Patreon is patreon.com slash badgayspod or click subscribe in Apple Podcasts. Back to the show. Well, thank you um, for that, uh, Hugh. Um, that very disturbing story of these two extremely disturbing and extremely English people. There really is something about an English bad gay. The combination of um, colonial fantasy, uh, public education, class system. <laughs> it's not the most complicated question here, but I want to start by asking about your assessment of their work um, as artists, both sort of collectively and individually. Like... How do you read their kind of, um, I don't know if we want to call it media art and durational performance piece that, that goes on right until, until they go to prison? Um, and then um, how do you evaluate uh, Joe Orton's uh, later plays and, and writing? Is it like uh, the kind of thing that really speaks to a moment or is there something that, that actually has some, some kind of lasting value there? Well, what's interesting is immediately in the sort of, in the sort of decades following their death, you know, Joe was at the height of his career and was seen as like a great potential hope for British theatre. And so he was, and he was killed in his prime. Um, so obviously his work really was pushed to the fore. Um, and Ken was seen as this, um, sort of sad drain on his resources. Um, and there's some element of truth to that, you know, in terms of the end of their relationship and the, their difficulty in their relationship. But, um, Ken would say, and I think there's, probably some quite good evidence for this, that he still plays an important collaborative role in terms of reading his scripts and making suggestions and things like that. Like, there is plenty of Ken in Orton's work right to the end. I think that's probably fair to say. Uh, secondly, um, they produce a, most of their work together, uh, their written work together. Um, a lot of it's lost, so it's hard to assess. But, um, I mean, I read it 10 or 15 years ago, but... Um, the Boy Hairdresser and Lord Cucumber, I remember enjoying, you know, so there's obviously s some strong collaborative stuff. And then really the the visual work, the collages, is only in the last 20 years that I think has really been getting its due. Uh, and people have been really pointing out that actually Halliwell was an enormously talented artist producing some very weird and interesting work in a, a sort of situation where he wasn't really in any way part of an established art world. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, uh, yeah, if you go and look at some of that work and... Um, as I was saying, Alex Margot Arden 
recently did sort of a re-examination of some of that work. Um, yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot to be said for them for for Ken as an artist, and I think it's it's um, it's sad that he's been overshadowed. Um, but then, of course, he did he did murder him. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of this, another thing actually to say about that, just in terms of how the how their 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 legacies have, I think, been taken since their death is in the aftermath of their death. You know they. They died this very same year that homosexuality was partially decriminalized in the UK. So there's sort of this, this, this gap between these, these two forms of homosexuality in British mainstream public imagination, I think. And I think one symbolizes what was the past, which is Kenneth Halliwell as this sort of sad, repressed, depressive, uh, lonely gay, lonely homosexual, let's say. Actually, and uh, and Joe is this sort of cruising, hip, leather jacket, sexy, new, adventurous, tough, proud, gay. Um, so I think that's also really, really um, influenced how they maybe they were interpreted in the years after their death. By actually, I actually think that negates some of the interest of of what's of, of uh, Ken's work. Yeah, and to make them, I mean, I, I really do. Once you get the kind of, um, you know, the prosecution for doing this work that then to later eyes really looks like a kind of much more coherent media art project, and the fact that they did in fact live in an extremely homophobic society and time and the ways in which Joe was pushed down by the class system, like you really understand. And again, this is like exactly what our show is constructed to try to deconstruct or to break down. But I really do understand why a kind of well-meaning straight person in the BBC would really want to make them into kind of uh, avant-garde artistic heroes and forerunners of you, you. Right? Like I, you sort of see why you see the temptation of trying to of trying to whitewash them, right? Yeah, and but and also he was a hugely influential playwright, and his work is still performed today. Um, like this is like I guess that the part of the problem is is the way that people talk about culture on all sides. Like one of which is that like in fact I think it's two sides of the same coin. One of which is that, that if something is produced by someone who 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 does terrible things, that somehow um, erasing their work is somehow penitence for and you can't enjoy their work as penitence for their, their crimes. And on the other hand, it's saying like well actually their work is so good that it erases. The, any need to examine their crimes, um, like the, neither of these things as true to my mind. Like he, like there, he, he was an interesting artist. His work has artistic value, but has to, if you don't talk about him and his life story and who he was as a person, you can't talk about him as a hero because he abused children. Right, and and this is, I think, one of the things that people find it really hard to keep multiple ideas in their head at the same time, right? Like there are cases like, for example, the Cancel R. Kelly campaign, which was really successful, where you had an extremely clear case of, okay, you know, financially supporting this artist is literally paying for this abuse to continue. Right. Yeah. And so we are making a demand and we are organizing around the demand of not supporting this in a very direct financial way when someone is dead um i think that you know if we if we're able to and it's not about like separate the art from the artist in the way that it's always meant when it comes from the right which is never talk about the bad things great men did but like we've all gotten i think to the point where we know intellectually and culturally that um you know the author is dead the text exists as its own as its own sort of work and we can think about how art moves and how art functions and how text moves and how text functions um in a way that's not necessarily separated to what its creators wanted it to do um or did themselves in their own lives which doesn't mean that we leave that or don't talk about it, right? We've just sat here and had a conversation about it and it was the right thing to do. But it is to say that we don't, it's like you, you don't have to, to pretend that people who do terrible things are not capable of making interesting or moving art um, is to refuse to be an adult um, and is to actually subscribe to a really conservative view and a view that enables abuse, um, which says that the people who do great things or make great things or make beautiful things are not capable yeah. Um, of treating people terribly. And that's the exact attitude which 
ends up enabling abuse and bad behavior yeah. to continue, right? Like, you know, this, 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 this goes on and on. So, you know, there you go. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, like, uh, uh, amazing, interesting, thoughtful art can be made by bad people who do terrible things. Absolutely. And that's important to keep aware of when you see someone making some very brilliant art is that doesn't negate the fact that they might, they might also still be a bad person. I think it should be something that should be understood and talked about in the context of their work. Um, and like, I'm also very understanding and happy if someone says like, I ha want, have nothing to do with Joe and I'm never going to read a book of his and I'm never going to go and see a play because it, I just, it disgusts me. I think that's also like a, a totally acceptable ethical position to take if that's what you want to take. You know, I, I'm reminded of this piece by the, uh, the comedian and writer Stuart Lee where about why he stopped listening to the Smiths. And he says, you know, he loved the Smiths. It was a very important, meaningful part of his life. But now when he listens to the Smiths, all he thinks is about Morrissey. And so he doesn't enjoy listening to the Smiths anymore. Fine. Don't like. Yeah, no, I can't. I can't make anyone enjoy something. But what I would do is I would ask people to try to have their own thought about a work of art and also about the person who made it. Um and that that's actually an imperative, right? It's an imperative to actually respond to ethical things that occur in the world um, as an individual. Um, we talked a lot about the kind of Tangier in this episode. We talked about it before in the context of André Gide. I think we've spoken a lot about um, kind of the Mediterranean and colonial sexuality when when coming out of, of um, continental Europe. And... We've spoken a bit less about it, oddly, coming from Great Britain, right? Even though Britain is one of the kind of most extensive colonial powers. Um, it seems like when they were there in Tangier, they were there with a kind of group of people. What is this group of English people specifically in Tangier? Like Nigel and these people, who are these people? Where are they meeting them? Um, and is there any kind of writing or work or thinking about those people and, and what it means that that was all sort of happening. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes from the fact that, that unlike the rest of Morocco, there was this thing called the International Zone in Tangier uh, that, that was ended um, shortly before they started going there, I think, on holiday, um, but obviously still lived on, which was, um, uh, I think, like a, a consequence of like a sort of international community's attempt to um, uh, s solve uh, maintain sort of colonial powers there and solve sort of various internal problems after the war and things like that. Like, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not deeply informed about the history, but I think it might be similar to Casablanca. Um, right. And, and so there was this community of sort of expats there who'd, and I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain they were probably also taking advantage of tax loopholes and all sorts of stuff like this. So it was this sort of, um, it, Bulls were there and yeah, and it was very, it was like a very much international city, which had like a, a much more tolerant, like, uh, attitude towards people's private lives because the ruling authorities kind of didn't want to get themselves involved in that sort of social policy, I guess. Um, and that was, con that sort of continued after the end of the international zone because people continued to carry on going there and they were, well-off, middle-class and upper-class um, British people. Um, and like I said before, um, Francis Bacon used to go there in the 50s when he was dating his abusive, uh, spit-fired, flying um, dom boyfriend, things like this. Right, right, right. Um, so, yeah, it was like it was a place that people would go for um, the sun and, uh, the you know, a long holiday or a couple of months and also for what is uh, euphemistically called sex tourism, which I'm sure in some cases, you know, you know, people were having sex with adults. Uh, but in, in a lot of cases, including this, they were taking advantage of that sort of lax policing of the expat community to um, to abuse children. Um, yeah. Well, if people want to learn more about uh, Orton and Halliwell, who, uh, what were some of the sources that you used to uh, research this story? So, as I mentioned before, John Lair is really the, the Orton expert and writes very, very interestingly and well about him. Um, and he wrote um, Prick Up Your Ears, the biography of Joe Orton. Um, he also edited the Orton Diaries, which I which I read for it as well, which are um, very explicit on a lot of this stuff, but also very interesting in their sort of descriptions of the sort of early 60s cultural and sex scenes in London. Um, and then there was an article from the Sunday Times from the 22nd of November 1970, so pretty soon after the, uh, the death, which brought a lot of this stuff to light, which was called The Life and Death of Joe Orton. 
Um, and then that uh, Front Row documentary, uh, Front Row Joe Orton, was broadcast on BBC Radio 4 on the 11th of August 2017. And um, anyone, I think anyone in the world can listen to that on um, on BBC Sounds. Uh, on top of that, on sort of extra colour, I guess, there's that book, Malicious Damage, The Defaced Library Books of Kenneth Halliwell and Joe Orton by Ilsa Colsell. It's worth watching. And then if you just want the story um, and the sort of piece of art made off this life, um, there was a film version made of Prick Up Your Ears, also called Prick Up Your Ears. I think originally written as a, as a maybe a play, but it was written by Alan Bennett, who's a very hmm. uh, important English gay playwright um, of the same generation. And directed by Stephen Frears, one of um, the UK's top directors. Uh, this was made in the 80s, I think. And it was starring Gary Oldman as uh, Joe Orton and Alfred Molina as Halliwell, which I've not that seen again amazing. for about 15 years. But um, I remember being very, very entertained by it. I mean, what a cast. Yeah. Um, well, uh, that's our show for today. Um, my name is Ben Miller. You can find me everywhere on the internet at BenWritesThings and BenWritesThings.com. My name's Hugh Lemmy. Um, you can subscribe to my newsletter, hugh.substack.com. And see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bad. 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 Bad.